I'm one of the pastors on the team. And you might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and, and you'll see, just as Pastor Pat mentioned, that we are starting a new series, a series on Nehemiah. And very excited about that. In fact, uh, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them to the book of Nehemiah. We're just going to be in chapter 1 today. We're kind of going to go make our way through the book, and, and so uh, you can do that. The, the notes will be sort of the, the scripture on your notes. The scripture will be on the outline or the, the PowerPoint as well. Let's just jump in. I want to start with a verse that is at the top of your outline. In Proverbs 29, 18, it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. So when people don't have a vision, they, they, they wither, right? There's, there's suffering that happens there. And, and this is certainly true just in terms of eyesight, right? In terms of our vision, just kind of literally speaking, when people don't have a vision for maybe what's behind them, uh, they don't realize the trouble that they could get into. Um, do we have a picture of that? Let's see if we... Yeah, like that. Okay. Um, it's a little scary, right? Like if you're just not paying attention, maybe there's something approaching you from behind that, that you don't see and you're just taking a selfie and you don't realize, uh, yeah, this is, this is about to get bad really quickly. Or you're unaware of what's around you, right? And you just don't understand what's going on around you and you're smoking a cigarette when uh, all these, you know, toxic flames are ready to, no? Okay. Sorry. Let's just leave that behind. My parents used to own toy poodles. They, they had toy poodles named Bradley and Abby. I always called them Ivy League poodles, Bradley and Abby. And they were good pets. My, my parents loved them, brought a lot of joy. But what was interesting is every time my dad went to let, you know, the animals out into the backyard, he would stop and he would look up in the sky. He would like look around and, and I'm like, dad, what are you doing? He's, oh, I'm, I'm looking for hawks, you know, before I let them out. So I'm like, Dad, can we be honest? If you're afraid of a bird carrying away your pet, it's not a dog. It's a rodent. You don't have pets. You have an infestation, right? Take the tiny sweater off, you know, and call the exterminator. Uh, the, the, no, I'm kidding. The, 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 the truth, though, is that it's actually quite pointless to look for hawks. And do you know why? It's because the hawk can be eight times further than your eyesight is capable of and still see what's going on in your backyard. God has given birds of prey in general, hawks specifically, this incredible eyesight, this vision, if you will, the, the capacity to see things far off, the, the, the vision to be able to see what is unfolding and what potential there is happening. And, and I bring all this up because Nehemiah has also been given hawk-like vision by God. He's able to have this hawk-like vision, this God-imbued vision to see things far off and to see what could be and, and even what should be and, and what you'll notice as we go through this book of Nehemiah, that a vision always starts with what you love and with what you hate. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of unpack that a little bit. Nehemiah is one of the greatest leaders in all of the scriptures. The book of Nehemiah is written uh, seemingly ripped right out of the journals that Nehemiah kept which to me is a really frightening concept because I have prayer journals that I write in every single day. And the thought that my journals would be like 
you know, publicly read thousands of years from now, um, that terrifies me, you know, that just, that thought just totally freaks me out. For me, it's more like classified information. I'm happy to tell you, but then I have to kill you. So, um, Here's what we're going to do. Let's just jump right into the book of Nehemiah. By the way, if you, if you sort of cross-reference the scripture with the um, historical Persian documents, you find that the book of Nehemiah starts in the year 446 B.C. So it's putting it back, you know, this incredible amount, you, you know, whatever, 2,500 years ago or so. Uh, 35, no, 2,500. I'm bad at math. That's why I went into ministry. But the... the uh, the idea is it could seem like it's so far removed, but what you will find is that the way God works in and through Nehemiah is exactly the way that God wants to work in and through our lives today. So we're going to see that it's very, very relevant for us. Let's jump in, starting in verse 1, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." All right, so as you look at that passage, you see it's the month of Kislev. That's, that's like November, December in our calendar year. The 20th year in the reign of King Artaxerxes, right, the king of Persia. Nehemiah was working in the capital. We actually find out he's the cupbearer to the king. That's his job. And he has some visitors, his brother and some friends. And they tell him that, yeah, the walls of Jerusalem, they are still destroyed. The, the Babylonians came. They sacked Jerusalem, the gates are burned, the temples in shambles, and almost all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem have been enslaved and carted off to be slaves in exile. And this was probably what happened to Nehemiah's parents and maybe even his grandparents. Okay? So this is, this is what's happening. Now, as we get into this, we're going to see the, the, the project that Nehemiah goes after is the project of rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the gates. But, but I, just, I do want to say this really clearly in case anyone would be prone to, to being mistaken about it. This has nothing to do with the current political conversation in America about building a wall. I just want to state it really clearly. And the reason why is because there's no analogy there. What had happened to Jerusalem is the Babylonians came in. They, they burned with fire the entire exterior of Jerusalem. They came in, totally dismantled the temple there. There's no place to worship God. And then they carted away. Most scholars believe they took into exile over 150,000 Jerusalem inhabitants, leaving 6,000 people behind. 150,000 people gone, 6,000 people remaining. And they were, remained in poverty. They remained in desolation. They were devastated. Now, to be analogous to American context, you would have to imagine that some foreign power, like let's say North Korea attacks us. They, they enslave and remove 300 million Americans and they leave less than 12 million Americans in total desolation and poverty. 
That is obviously not our scenario. Does that make sense? So, so you, you can't make that kind of an analogy, but, but here's where you can go with this, is that the people of God, they had no hope, right? They, they, there, was, there was this, this brokenness about their own future because Jerusalem was completely unprotected. It was therefore devastated. In other words, any kind of progress that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were able to muster would be immediately undone by the bandits and, and, and those, uh, you know, kind of warring powers that would sweep through from time to time, stealing their herds, taking their crops, you know, r- removing any kind of progress that they had happened to make. And that's why this was such a problem. Now, Nehemiah heard this news, and his heart was broken. It says that he mourned, and he wept, and he fasted for days. And in fact, if you read the second chapter, you see that it's actually three or four months later that the next event occurs. The thought is that he is in this state of mourning for months. His heart is broken over this situation. The message is called ache, that he had this ache in his heart for, for the people of God, his own people. For the city of Jerusalem, the city that was broken down without hope, without progress, without an empowerment for the future. And he had this ache. And and I just want you to kind of picture in your mind, Nehemiah hears this news and he just makes this proclamation. This is unacceptable. I just just want you to picture him just hearing this news and he, he just, his heart's broken and he's like, this cannot be. This is unacceptable to me. Now, I I do want to point out, and many of you, if you are familiar with this story, you already know that the events of the Babylonians sacking Jerusalem, they happened 141 years prior to this episode in Nehemiah. 141 years ago is when Jerusalem got sacked and all the exiles taken away. Now, some scholars say that's like us hearing about Abraham Lincoln being assassinated and bursting into tears, right? Like that just, why? The the question is why after 141 years is Nehemiah so broken about this news? Part of the answer is he's broken about it because it's not news. It's the same old news. It's the same news again and again and again. His entire life, he has heard stories of Jerusalem being sacked, Jerusalem being devastated, its inhabitants being in a bad way, and his heart is now broken again for the sad plight of the people in Jerusalem, his own people. So it's not news, it's the same old news that really gets him this time. And the second part of the answer, I think, is that Jesus just gives Nehemiah his heart for a broken people. See, G- Jesus is always going to have a heart of compassion. Jesus, he, he sees situations like this, and the Bible says he has compassion. on They're like sheep without a shepherd, and, and Jesus is moved with compassion. And that heart that Jesus has, it seems like Nehemiah, he, just, he was struck with the heart of Jesus for these people. He was struck with the heart of Jesus, and he, he just, you know, his response was, this is unacceptable. And, and I do want you to know, entropy is a reality in the universe we live in. And many of you are familiar with this law of thermodynamics. This entropy is one of the constants. What, what the law of entropy states is that when left alone, 
things will naturally descend into their most disorganized state. When left alone, things will naturally descend into their most disorganized state. So they'll go from freshness to decay. They'll, They'll go from order to disorder. Um, the only thing that apparently seems to be an exception to the rule of entropy is um, McDonald's french fries. <laughs> have you seen the end of Super Size Me, where they, they have like a picture of day one, McDonald's french fries, and day 30, McDonald's french fries, and day two year, you know, in McDonald's. They, they never decay. Like, it's really frightening. Uh, where was I going? Um, so Jerusalem is caught in this system of entropy, right? It's, it's, it's most disorganized, it's most disheveled, it's, it's most undone. It's it, like there's no social life in this city, there's no hope, there's no future. And, and what's interesting is that Jesus, he sees us as humans and he intervenes, right? I mean, this is just the eternal story of the good news of Jesus, that he sees us in our descending entropy, spiritually speaking, and Jesus intervenes. And the heart of Jesus is that he's the one who steps in and disrupts the cycle of entropy, or in this case, he sends a person to step in and to intervene and to disrupt the cycle of entropy. And that's what Jesus is going on. That's where Nehemiah is in all of this, and, and so... We have to recognize that God loves people. God loves people. God loves cities. And when I talk about the city, when I even talk about Jerusalem in this series, what I don't want you to focus on is a skyline. I don't want you to focus on, you know, the architecture in the cities. What I, what I want you to picture when I talk about cities is I want you to picture people. Because to God, there is no more beautiful thing than people. People, the only thing in the universe created in the image of God. God loves all of nature. He, he loves all of, you know, the universe. It's all part of his creative hand. But I'm telling you, when you maybe go to the Grand Canyon and you see this epic landscape or, or you're at the top of a mountain and, and you're looking out over this beautiful green earth that God's created, you say, oh, this is beautiful. It is beautiful. But God says it, but it's nowhere near as beautiful as people. People are, are what make my heart pound. And so what God had seen, what God sees when he looks at Jerusalem now, it's, it's his people that are in disarray. It's not about the walls or the buildings, the gates. It, it's about his people. It's about their heart. You know, the, the temple is totally destroyed, which means what? That the life of worship is gone as well. So God's not receiving glory. His people don't have empowerment. They don't have any hope. All of this is what's going on. And, and a question I would ask you is, have we normalized the tragic in our city? Or do we have the heart of Jesus for our city? Many of you know the statistic that the greater Seattle region, about 8% of the population identify themselves as Jesus followers. 8%. Now, that's exactly the same amount as identify as Jesus followers in mainland China, a place where it is technically illegal to be a Jesus follower. So many of you, you've heard that statistic before, but I just want to ask, but does it break your heart? Is there an ache in your heart over that reality? Do you respond like Nehemiah when you hear that, like, ah? 
Because I want us, friends, I want us to have the heart of Jesus for our city. Nehemiah, he had the heart of Jesus for his city. And so the first thing that he does is he goes to the Lord in prayer. So let's take a look at this. Starting in verse 5, we'll go to verse 12. Nehemiah, then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, you might want to circle the word awesome, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer, he says, to the king. So this man refers to the king. So I want you to see that Nehemiah goes to God, his father, and he specifically has a plan as he walks through his prayer life with his heavenly father. And I want to walk through that with you. If you're filling in the blanks, the first is what we see Nehemiah do. It's what our challenge is. We need to begin with praise and adoration. And Nehemiah does that. You can see it right in the first line. Oh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenants, etc. He just kind of goes on and on. And I, I just want to encourage you in this reality that the word awesome is appropriately and literally ascribed to God. He is awesome. He inspires all. And the more clearly we see him and the more we can come into his presence, the more awe-inspired we are. So I want to just encourage you because no matter how much you and I can declare the awesomeness of God, he is more awesome still. And so that's always why it's a great way to begin our prayer, our praise, is just by adoring him, by coming to him in gratitude and thanksgiving and praise, by, by specifically talking about how awesome he is, what his character qualities are, how he loves us, how he's present with us, etc., and then go into thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is one of those things as well. For every one thing you thank God for, two additional things will come to your mind. And then you thank God for those two things. And then four additional things will come to your mind. Oh, yeah, I need to thank you for this as well. And, this is, and it'll just keep going and going. Because the more we practice thanksgiving, the more we'll find to be thankful for. Can I get an amen? amen. That's why the scripture says this. We're, we're told to make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. This is the kind of sacrifice he delights in. Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you made to the Most High. So we begin with praise, we begin with adoration. The next fill-in is we move to confession. And Nehemiah does this. He, he says, I confess my sins. 
the sins uh, that I have committed against you. And, and then he says, and I confess the sins of my father's house against you and, and the sins of all of the Israelites against you. We have behaved wickedly. We have done selfishly. And, and he just kind of throws himself into this whole thing. Like, I'm part of this culpable reality. I'm, I'm part of the problem here as well. And I would just encourage you in this, that this is one of those incredible things that we probably misunderstand as humans so often. But confession is given to us as a gift from God. It's a part of his gift to us. See, Jesus, when he intervened on our behalf, he came to this earth. He chose to go to a cross to pay the penalty for sin, for all of your sin, for all of my sin, for, for, for all sin in general. Like he just, he took it all on himself on the cross. This was his choice. This is what he, the pathway that he embarked on, the, 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 the choice that he made in coming to earth in the first place. That's what he came for. Now, he did this, which means that when we confess to him, there's nothing you can't confess because there's nothing he can't forgive. It's a gift. It, it allows us to be free of the burden of our sin. And I want to say this clearly. When you confess your sin to the Lord, you're not informing him of what you've done, right? You're, you're not, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I blew it in this. And he's like, what? You did what? I had no idea. You know, like that, that, that's not what confession is all about. Confession is actually agreeing with God. God, you are so good, and you are so right, and you are so just, and, 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 and I know that you didn't want me to be selfish like this. I agree with you that that selfishness was wrong or whatever it is, as you confess. I, I hurt this person, and, and, and I, I'm sorry that I hurt this person. I don't want to be the kind of person who hurts other people. Or I, I did this thing, and I know it grieves your heart, and I'm sorry that it grieves your heart. I can't believe that I, I did it you know, again or what, however it is. But you, what you're doing is you're agreeing with God about that thing that you know God already knows about you. But you move to confession. And again, it's this beautiful reality. There's nothing you can't confess because there's nothing he can't forgive. The next fill-in is we see Nehemiah. He remembers God's promises. And so the challenge is we remember God's promises. We remember what it is that he's spoken in terms of encouragement, what he's spoken in terms of hope for us. And, and what Nehemiah does is, is he doesn't just remember God's promises. He, he begins to remind God of his promises. Hey, God, remember when you promised that it, it, yeah, even if we blow it and even if we get exiled to the furthest horizons of the earth, that if we humble ourselves and repent, if we confess our sin and come back to you, that you will gather us back together to the place where you want to glorify your name. Do you remember when you promised that to us, God? Remember that promise you made to us, Lord. Now, what's interesting is I think this is something that God invites us to do, is to remind him of his promises. I, I want to confess to you it's hard for me to do sometimes. It's hard for me to remind God of his promises. But if you're a parent here, you know that your kids have no problem reminding you of the promises that you've made to them, Right? Dad, you, you said, I mean, you promised, you, you told me that if I got straight A's all year, you'd buy me a car. You promised, right? Or, or you know, you guys said that if, if I finished my book report, you know, by noon that you'd take me to Coldstone or whatever the promise was. My buddy Lee, he has four kids and they have a, a chore day. And so the promise that he made to them is if they finish their chores by a certain time, they'll have time left over to wrestle. And the kids love to wrestle. 
my buddy Lee, he hates wrestling. And the reason why he hates wrestling is because it's always four on one and he always leaves with a headache. But he loves his kids. And so every time they come to him, dad, you promise. He's like, all right, bring it on. You know, like he's ready to go. And, and here's the thing. Jesus, he doesn't fulfill his promises to us begrudgingly. It's not like a drag to him that, oh, yeah, that's right, I forgot, you know. No, no, he knows the promises that he's made to us, and he's made those promises for a specific purpose. Why? To fulfill them in our lives. That's why he's made them. And so we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you know, you've promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. Remember that, Jesus. And he, he does, and he never does leave us or forsake us. Jesus, you, you promise that even if we disown you, that you can't disown us because you can't disown yourself. And, and you've promised that nothing is ever hopeless in this life because you're capable of infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. And so we remember his promises. We remember his plan. Jesus, you promised to build your church. You promised to seek and save the lost. You promised that in this world we'll have troubles, but you also promised us that you have overcome the the world. And and so we are remembering God's promises. We remind him of his promises. We're encouraged by the promises that God has made to us. I, I think that one of the reasons why we don't remember God's promises is because he fulfills them in ways we don't expect him to. And in the things that we do expect him to do, he, he doesn't do. And so we sort of forget his promises in the midst of all that. One of the things that I have personally heard, one of the promises that I have personally heard God make to me is just this. Mike, you can trust me. You can tr- I, I promise you, Mike, you can trust me. Now, what he did not promise is that as I trust him, I can live nonstop surfing on a warm white sand beach with a beautiful weather 360 days a year. Like that, that wasn't a part. That would be my preference. But that's not his promise to me. In fact, and you might want to write this down. God rarely promises our preferences. God rarely promises our preferences. God always promises his presence. So if we can get our mind around that, that the primary way that God fulfills his promise to us is by his presence with us. That will begin to get our expectations in a, in a place where, oh, okay, I get it. I can, I can deal with anything in this life because I'm not dealing with it alone. God is with me, walking every step of the way with me. So... We begin with praise, we move to confession, we remember his promises. The last villain here is then we present our requests to him. We present our our prayer requests or uh, we might use the word our supplications to God. I, I would suggest to you that most of our prayer life probably involves this category. That we come to God and this is what we're dealing with. So these are the things that we ask his help. Would you please move in this way? Would you please heal in this way? Would you please provide in this way? Or however those things are. And this is where we spend most of our time. And, and I would just encourage you in this. Because I, I think it's really clear that the Bible actually gives us permission for this. 
that, that God, he wants us to ask him. And so Nehemiah does ask this of God. God, would you give me favor? God, would you go before me? Would you allow me to be a part of this process? And, and I think the scripture is clear. God wants us to ask. In fact, what we see in Philippians 4, 6, it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. So you might want to circle that phrase. We're, we're invited to pray about everything that, that was, we have going on in our lives. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. I'll tell you that one of my favorite things to do is to thank God for the answer that's already on the way. It's just one of those things. It, it puts my heart and my mind into such a great place because God already knows my need before I speak it. And so even as I speak it, or oftentimes, you guys know, I, I do prayer journals. So I'm, I'm writing out my prayers all the time. And, and as I'm writing out my prayer journal, I'm writing out the things that are on my heart, the burdens I'm carrying, I know God already knew that was an issue for me. And so I begin to thank him for the way that he's at work behind the scenes in thousands of ways that I don't even see yet. And it just gets me to this place that there's a deeper confidence and there's a richer walk with the Lord because I know he's a God who cares. I know he's a God who's with me. I know he's a God who's already at work behind the scenes. So I would encourage you in that way as well. Overlake, the question I have is, are we a church that's committed to prayer like Nehemiah? Is this the first place that we go, that we, we begin with prayer in our quiet times? in our family times, in our, in our times with our groups, that, that prayer is a place that we go to first and last. And, and I know things are pretty good at Overlake right now. I'm so thankful for that reality. But I want to make sure that we are embodying this picture of prayer, right? That this is something that, that, that we're praying for one another, that we're praying for our city, that, that, that we begin to develop the heart of Jesus, that ache, that divine discontent, like Nehemiah had for his city, that that's what's happening in our own lives as well. And again, if you want to look at sort of the, the historical context of Nehemiah, 141 years, the walls and, and the gates of Jerusalem and the, and the people of Jerusalem were in desolation. And Nehemiah comes and he accomplishes his vision in 52 days. What's the difference? Prayer. The thing is birth and prayer. The thing's grounded in prayer. Prayer is the foundation of what it is that Nehemiah pursues. Friends, here's the truth. Prayer can do what God can do. Prayer is a recognition of where I end and where God begins. And so we need to start this thing in prayer. We need to begin in prayer. Prayer needs to be our first response. Okay? And again, we go after praise and adoration, then we move to confession, then we remember the promises of God, and then we present our requests to him. Okay, so that's the, the picture that we get from Nehemiah. And, and I would say that his prayer begins with an ache in his heart, right? That ache that Jesus put there, that divine discontent. And so what I want to do is I want to make this personal for us as a church family. If you're filling in the blanks, my, my prayer is that the Lord would develop an ache in your heart for your own personal life and for your own personal city, the city that you live in, the, the area of influence that he has already given you. And when I talk about your personal life, I just have to ask a question. Are, are there places in your life where you have sort of let your defenses down, where you are wide open and vulnerable to the enemy of God, 
Maybe it's in a place of discouragement. Maybe it's in a place of sin where you just know there's an area and you just stumble into sin again and again and again. You've got no protection there. Maybe it is um, relationally. So there's now div- divisions in your relational life because you've just you've kind of let those areas slack. And, and so I just want to ask, is there an ache in your heart for your own personal life? And wherever that is, just let's, let's begin with what we've just covered, that, that you begin with praise, that the Lord knows that already, and, and, and you, you praise him, that he's with you there, and then you confess anything that you've done that's allowed that situation to become a reality in your life or to continue as a reality in your life. And then you remember the promises of God, that God is a God who heals, who rebuilds, who restores. God is a a God who brings hope where there maybe doesn't seem to be any hope. And then you present your request to the Lord, and you just draw close to Jesus and allow him to bring the answer that you're looking for there. And then when it comes to your city, I do want us to be a people that pray for our cities. Let's pray for our workplaces, pray for our neighborhoods, our, our communities. That that is something that I, I want us to always be about. We just finished this beautiful campaign over the last three years called Blessing My City. I love that that is who we are. That's how we want to posture ourselves. But let's make sure that, that we don't let anything get in the way of us being that positive influence. That people know, hey, we care about our city. We care about our community. That we're, we're constantly seeking God's best for the people that live around us. Okay, so that's what that idea of that ache, that holy ache is for our personal lives, for our personal city. And then the next part of this is the invitation that I want to invite you to into this next season. If you're filling in the blanks, it's this. I want to I ask you to develop an ache in your heart for vulnerable children. An ache for vulnerable children. And this is, the, this is a new piece, and you actually might have seen the exhibit as you walked into the hallway and... And there's just a little bit of of conversation we need to have about what it is that we feel like God has cast a vision for us as a church family. I've I've shared this before over Lake, but in the year 2000, I had an opportunity to go to Kenya for the very first time. It was not the first mission trip I've been on. I've been on many, many mission trips through the years. But this was the first time I'd been to Katali, Kenya. And one of the things that we were doing in Katali was we were working with street kids And so one afternoon, we gathered about 200 street kids into this kind of open square and fed lunch to everybody. And then there was this program, had a bunch of songs and a lot of games and some crafts. And and then somebody from Kenya sharing their testimony and talking about Jesus. And then the afternoon ended with another meal. So it was kind of started and ended with a meal. And then we let all the, the street kids go and and what was interesting about that is, is right away, as we, as we welcomed all the street kids into this area, there was a little girl, a little four-year-old girl who came, and she stood right next to me, and she just held my hand. And she was wearing this really ratty sundress, and no shoes, no jacket. And she just was my buddy. So we kind of hung out, and we played the games together and sang the songs together. And then when it was story time, I sat down, and she sat on my lap, and She's just my little buddy. Well, at some point during the afternoon, she got up and she made her way through the crowd, came back to me, and she was holding a little two-year-old. And so after the sort of the program was over, I asked one of the Kenyan workers to do some translation and ended up having a nice conversation with her, found out her name, and found out why she was on the streets. Her parents had both passed away 
probably due to an illness like HIV AIDS. And then I, I asked, you know, about the little girl. And it turned out that the little girl was her younger sister. That this precious child was caring for this precious child. And I remember when I heard all of this, I just remember the earth kind of shifting underneath my feet. I'm sure there was something in my heart, like in Nehemiah's heart, that was like, this is unacceptable. This cannot continue. Is this even a thing? Like, I just had, I couldn't get my head around it. My daughter had just been born. I had, I had this beautiful infant baby girl at home. And I had left her in, in the loving care of her, her mother, my wife. And, and I'd come over here to Kenya. And now I see this precious baby girl caring for another precious baby girl. And yet there's no parental covering. There's, there's no love, you know, covering over her. There's, there's no sense of hope or a future here. Sometimes the Lord calls. in just a moment like that. <laughs> and I, I, I just, I, I remember thinking in, in, along that trip, I just remember thinking, God, you've, you've marked me. Like you've, uh, you've, you've done something in my heart on this. And, and, and I just knew that if I only have a little influence, if I only have a little voice and ministry, if I only have a little difference I can make in the world, that's, that's okay, but I, at least I want to do what I can to help kids like this. And so many of you know that it's, it's marked my own family journey, so we're an adoptive family. And, uh, many of you know, if you've been around Overlake for any length of time, that we've, we've established a really vibrant orphan care ministry. I mean, there's just so much beauty that happens around the orphan care ministry at Overlake, led by Pastor Michelle, and the idea of there are over 100 uh, adoptive and foster care families in our congregation. We're looking for more all the time, uh, that we host the Refresh Conference, which really cares for thousands of lives here in, in this building, but then also we've started other conferences around the nation. Uh, one just happened in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so we're excited about that. We, we house, um, this is the only church I know that houses the Children's Law Center here. And it's specifically, um, you know, Andrew Schneider, he just, he commits all of his time to finalizing adoptions. And he just, uh, this was, I think, last week, he finalized his 310th adoption into permanency. Yeah, this is so great. And then that's, you know, all this stuff's happening locally, but then internationally in this Katali region, what we've done is research. Now, why is it that, that kids end up on the streets in the first place? The number one answer, the number one culprit is extreme poverty. So you're starving to death and you've got no hope of education, no hope of employment. You, you, you know, you believe any lie. The lie that the streets are better is just one of those things. And of course, they're not. And so what we've done is gone in, and for the last uh, 15, 17 years, we've really tried to address the issues of extreme poverty in this area. So that's why we've dug, uh, I think at last count, 96 different freshwater wells all over this region. 
why we've trained over 500 farmers in this region, just little village farmers, just little plot farmers, but we train them in order to figure out how do, how do we help multiply their crops, and it's just simple agricultural principles like composting, things like that. We provide seed for them as well, and the only thing we ask is that they would educate a neighbor and give, give 10% of their seed to that neighbor and start that process, and so we've just seen a flourishing over this whole region. We've developed relationship with all kinds of pastors all over the area, so we've got communication and connection in villages. We've got uh, church connections all over the place. We've got all this sort of history of helping develop this region. And now what we want to do is we really want to take a step forward in getting the kids off the streets and back into homes. And so we've got a plan for that. And we've got, you know, we've got the partners for that. I mean, this is the vision that God has given us. I want you to go ahead and watch this video and, and then we'll, we'll close up. Yeah, little guys, little guys. Let me make this clear. This is different than any other project you've heard about at this church or any other church. My name's Derek. Uh, I was five years old the first time I skipped the streets. people step over those children as they went about their day as the kids would lay sick or just tired on the road and we can't do that anymore it's time to pick those children up and help them find a home and a family strong relationships with these kids because if they don't trust us as individuals and as an organization then they'll never choose willingly to leave that lifestyle. As I look back on my life I realize that the streets promised you lots of things but what it didn't promise or give to you was this sense of hope or a future. Yeah, it's not always gonna be easy. I mean, it's rarely gonna be easy that we can just take a child home. But if we continue at it, if we continue the, the perseverance through it, that there's a home for every one of these kids. In Lamentations 2.11, it says, My eyes fail with tears. 
My heart is troubled. My bile poured out on the ground because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. And again, this is the recognition that this is unacceptable, so we'd like to make a change. The, the census that has recently been done around Katali is that there are about 400 or so street kids living in downtown Katali. Now, Katali is about the same size as Bellevue. So I'd love for you just as a mental you know, exercise, picture that you're down at Snowflake Lane with your kids, with your family members, and eight or nine busloads show up and drop off kids aged 2 to 12. And, and they're homeless. And they've lost parents to disease. They're, 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 they, you know, whatever, extreme poverty. They, they've been, you know, dealt a horrible hand. And so now they're just on the streets in downtown Bellevue. Friends, we would take care of that problem lickety-split. And so the challenge is that we would have kind of that hawk-eye vision that Nehemiah had. We could look kind of to a far distance and go, oh, even though it's happening there, we could be a part of something revolutionary, part of a paradigm that actually would really change the way orphan care happens in the world. And what I mean by that is there are these kids on the streets, and, and so what happens now is, and again, this is done by people who love Jesus all over the world, is that they are, you know, make a, a relationship with them, and then they invite them into an orphanage-type setting. And so they fill a bed, and they take care of that child until the child is 17 or 18 years old, and then that's the end of their care. And it's, and it's an incredibly tragic reality. It's better than living on the street, but it's a tragic reality because at that time, they just drop off the face of the planet and, and there's no family for them. There's no home for them. There's no extended village around them. And so what makes this paradigm different is what we've seen, what we've learned through our partners over there already is if we can take them off the streets, put them in a safe bed for about three months or so and do some rehabilitation with them help train them, and you know, as we're feeding them, as we're clothing them, as we're caring for them, train them into what it looks like to be a part of a family. What are the responsibilities? What are the behaviors that are required if you're a part of a family? And then we're using social workers to go back into their village, in, uh, their village of origin and connect them with either extended family members, uh, church members, uh, just people in their village that will open their home to them and take these kids in. And we've seen this happen in a neighboring community of Kasumu where 1,800 children have been rehabilitated off the streets and back into homes. We know this works. And so what we're doing is taking that program and planting it. We're sort of on the ground level in Katali. And this is one of those things where I really do want to invite you over, Lake, to join me in this. I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to join our staff in this, our elders, our leaders, because this is something that has already captured our hearts. What I would do is, just like Nehemiah, I would say where this vision and where all visions begin is with prayer. So that's what I want to invite you to. I want you to, to invite you to pray with me, to pray with our church as, as we explore what it is that God is developing in us for this vision. And here's how I'd like you to do it. On your way out, please walk by the exhibit, and you'll notice a brochure. Could you just grab that thing? Grab it, and as you're flipping through it, just, just kind of read it prayerfully, asking Jesus, how is it that you would like myself, my family, to engage in this? 
And then secondly, you'll notice that in the exhibit, there's a, a spot right in the middle where there's a magnet board, and there are magnets all over the thing. In fact, um, there should be about 400 magnets there representing each of the street kids that live in Katali. And you'll notice that on the magnets are names. These aren't just made-up names. These are names of the kids on the streets. And so please take one and put it maybe on your refrigerator or, you know, clip it somewhere in your car or someplace, you know, put it where you can see it kind of daily and just pray by name over that child, that child who's made in the image of God, that child that Jesus died on the cross to redeem and restore, to give a hope and a future. And, and let's be a part of this thing. You know, every great vision will start with an ache. It will start, a great vision will start because of something we love and something we hate. And so I, my prayer is that you would allow Jesus to stir this kind of heart up in you for vulnerable children. What our prayer is ultimately is this is not just something that can happen in one location, but this is the paradigm that can shift and begin to take vulnerable children back into homes all over the world. That's our prayer. So what I'd love to have you do is stand with me right now, and let's pray together specifically that Jesus would stir this up in us, that he would stir his ache for these kids in our hearts. You know, please go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. My, my thought is that there are probably some people here who are hesitant to pray that Jesus would create a divine discontent. You don't want to pray that God would make your heart ache. And I understand that. But I want to encourage you. If you've never let your heart break for the things that break the Father's heart. If you've never allowed yourself to get on the ground level of God building a vision that transforms lives. If you've never walked the road of how sweet it is. When Jesus turns the ache in our hearts into joy because we see his vision fulfilled, I want to encourage you to just take a step of faith that Jesus has something beautiful along this road for you. And Jesus, we do ask that you would find us willing to take a step of faith that you would find us willing to pray that you would put in our hearts an ache for, for vulnerable kids that need you so much, that need homes and families so deeply. And would you allow us to be a part of bringing a solution, a hope where there is no hope, Lord. And Jesus, we pray for our communities and our neighborhoods. We, we pray for the hurting around us today. And even for our own personal lives, Lord, we pray for those areas in our hearts where, where we are vulnerable, where we need your help and your protection. Lord Jesus, it's so incredible to be a part of your family. It's so amazing to recognize that we are loved by you and saved by you. We're redeemed and restored by you. And all of this is a gift, not that we would keep to ourselves, but that we would share with others. So would you please show us how to do that, how to live like that. Give us a vision like you gave Nehemiah.
We pray all this in your precious and holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.